Welcome to the Write Something Worthy podcast, where we teach emerging authors how to ditch the fear, confusion, and overwhelm of writing a bestseller-worthy non-fiction book. And now, your host, Tonya Brockett. Greetings, everyone. Tanya here. And this week, I want to talk to you about some of my impressions from the book Editor Proof Your Writing by Don McNair. This book was published back in 2013, but it has some timeless advice that may help you to clean up your manuscript before you send it to your editor. And this will reduce your total cost of editing in the long run. So I hope some of the uh, content of this session will be helpful to you so that you can think about cleaning up your writing even more before sending your manuscript to your editor. Now, mind you, as an editor, I appreciate whatever you can do to perfect your work as well as possible before sending it my way. One thing that I appreciate about what Don McNair said is that his primary advice, have that manuscript edited professionally before sending it out. Have experienced eyes look it over and tell you what the problems are and perhaps help you to solve them. You know that I believe that every good writer deserves a great editor. So every manuscript you write, no matter whether it's your first or your 50th, needs to be reviewed by an editor before it goes out to the world. So let me tell you a little bit about Don McNair, uh, the author of the Editor Proof Your Writing book, 21 Steps to the Clear Prose Publishers and Agents Crave. That's the book. So he wrote it realizing that um, most writers don't know when they are screwing up. They don't know why their books aren't being received well. And sometimes that means they're not going to know how to fix it. So he is a prolific author. He's written four published nonfiction how-to books, two adult novels, four romance novels, and a co-authored book as well. He concentrates now, I believe, as far as the uh, website shows, on editing novels for others. So if you have a fiction book, this might be something that he could help you with over at donmcnair.com. And that's M-C-N-A-I-R.com. Hopefully, I'll have an opportunity to have him on the show at a later date. But right now, I wanted to focus on some of the content from the book that I found useful that I keep notes for when I have authors who want to figure out, you know, what can I do to improve my work before sending it to an editor. So this book review hopefully can help you a little bit. Now, again, his focus is on the novel, but many of the 21 steps in part two of the book are useful for nonfiction authors as well. In the first part, first chapter, he's talking about how to format your first chapter of your book and title it for submission. He's thinking that you're going to be pitching it to an agent, an agency, and then hopefully publishing. So he's telling you how to do that. I'm not going to go into that detail right now. But in part one of the book, he talks about the words 
that go in your book. In part two, he talks about the words to take out of your book. And in part three, he talks about sharing your words, sharing your work. So my focus, where I'm probably going to spend most time, is going to be in part two. But I am going to talk a few things about part one, because even if you are not writing a novel, even if you are writing a nonfiction book, there are going to be times when you have characterization or you're sharing a story from your history. Like when you're writing a memoir or you are providing instructional stories or case studies that go with your nonfiction topic, there are going to be times when you're going to have dialogue, you're going to have characters, you're going to have perspective that they need to come from. So I figured I'd share a few of the tips from his words in part of his book. And I want to start with chapter two. There's sometimes he has some really funny things that I really appreciate. So in chapter two, he talks about the hook, the hook of your book, right? What is it when your potential reader looks at your cover and they say, hmm, that looks interesting, flips it over to the back and says, oh, wow, so this is why I should read the book, then flips it open to the inside and reads that first sentence, perhaps, this is what you want to grab the reader, is the hook. So he defines it as a sentence that asks a story questions the reader wants answered. So they make you want to know what kind of story is going to start like that. Like, what? what is he, why is he starting this book in this way? It can be a paragraph, it can be a sentence, but it's a sentence that really packs a punch or draws the reader in. And his examples, he's using some fiction examples, but a great example. The book opens with, it will all be over soon. Oh my gosh, you're like, what? What's going to be over soon? Why? Why do I want it to end? So this example was from The Magic Hour by Kristen Hanna. And then his other example was this. Death wasn't normally on my mind in the grocery store parking lot. Ooh, that's from the book Murder in the Milk Case by Candace Beer Prentice. It's like, oh my gosh, she's at a grocery store parking lot? And I'm assuming it's a she here, right? And uh, death normally wasn't on my mind. Hmm. So those are kind of those hooks that really draw the reader in. And they don't have to stop on the first page and the first sentence and the first paragraph. He has a really cute story um, suggesting how you can drop a shoe and then drop the first shoe of another pair and then drop a second shoe of the first pair and keep the readers going. So anyway, it was it was interesting how he just suggested that you have a hook that says, oh my gosh, I really need to know what else is going to go on in this book. And I'm going to have to keep reading to find out. In chapter three of the book, he talks about point of view. Now, this is a thing that trips people up a lot when they are talking about dialogue or telling stories in their books. So he describes first person is real time, telling us what they see and do as they see it and do it. For example, I walked into the bar, dot, dot, dot. So it is in that first person narrative. Now the the downside to this is that 
you're confined by only what that person sees and from that one perspective. So the readers aren't getting to see what Bob over there is thinking while he's, you know, uh, crying into his beer at the end of the bar. Or, you know, we don't know what else is going on unless it's from our own perspective. The most common perspective is, or point of view, is the third person. It's written in the past tense. For example, his example, when Betty walked into the bar, dot, dot, dot. So here it's still Betty's point of view, even if she were in the first person. But if the other characters do something, we're seeing them from Betty's perspective and can only respond from that perspective. And we have to wait until the other characters tell Betty why they did something before the reader can know. So you can't jump into other characters' heads and start explaining things. And that can be confining and constraining sometimes. Now, the omniscient point of view is that bird's eye view. Uh, It's like God, he says, like God directing a play of his little humans. Um, And he says that's generally not the most favorable perspective, having that omniscient view, because it's just like, all the time you're going to know something or you're going to have to keep something from the reader so that they don't know it because you already know it. So anyway, that can be a challenge when you're writing with characters in your book. Okay, in chapter four, he went into uh, not being an information dumper. And here he's just talking about writing in the here and now and not dumping a bunch of information on your reader, like backstory that is often not needed. He showed an example of starting a story and heart-wrenching action two years earlier rather than having the character sitting there and reliving it in her mind because there's no action and there's no dialogue when she's just reliving it. So you're showing versus telling. It's much more engaging. And the secret is, he says, to write in real time. Use backstory information only as needed, where needed, and in context. Don't tell what happened in the past, but show it as part of the action now. So that can be really relevant when you are telling a story in a memoir, for example, and you're trying to express what happened, share some information, but not doing it in a way that is going to bore your reader as if you're just retelling the story. Get them into the action so that they can see what happens. In chapter five, McNair goes into uh, a description of your manuscript as a Christmas tree. And he says, first you put your tree up, you decorate it, then you move all the ornaments around. And if you see them all bunched up in one place, you just move it around, right? So if you see you dumped a bunch of information in one place, maybe it could be spread around to make it more engaging in other areas. So this often plays a lot into the whole novel concept, but I thought it was still relevant to share. In chapter six, he went on to show more examples about Christmas trees, so I'm not going there. In chapter seven, he talked about making your scenes work harder. And basically, each scene that you have in a book, especially if you're telling stories again, that they share information to move the story along. They shouldn't slog you down. In chapter eight, McNeil goes into um, 
uh, here's how he uh, named the chapter. Don't discuss Sal's ears with silken words. So describe scenes to reflect the sensibilities of the character, not you, the author. So that's um, helpful, obviously, when you are sharing information about a character who lived decades ago or what have you and wouldn't have heard a cell phone ringing, right? You've got to be where the character would be or in the mind that the character would be on. So, you know, they didn't have ringtones way back in the day. It was just like that one ring that you heard on the wall, right? That was it. So be mindful of that when you are writing uh, stories, especially stories that happened in the past. Because oftentimes we'll think about, you know, a story from our childhood, right? And we want to share that story because it's relevant to something, some decision that we make today or in our business life when we're writing a business book. But when we were young, we did X, Y, and Z. Well, we may forget that when we were young, well, okay, I guess it depends on how old you are. But when we were young, we didn't have certain things that we have now. We didn't have, you know, all of this, all these different apps that are online. We just had computers and they may have been in a computer lab and not on our desk. Who knows? So be mindful when you're going back and telling stories that you reflect where that character was at that time and don't inflict um, your present moment on the past character. Anyway, moving on. McNair goes into chapter nine talking about um, needing conflict in your stories to make them interesting, got to make them engaging. And that, so he says your heroine needs to hate the hero or whatever, have some kind of antagonism, some kind of conflict that makes the story interesting. And then chapter 10, he talks about they need to like each other too. So maybe there's some kind of tension that's going on between them, especially if there's anything that's involving romance or anything like that. And that's really, really for the fiction writer there. But even if you're trying to uh, tell a story that shows uh, conflict from a nonfiction perspective because you're sharing some memoir story. You want to be mindful of that when you're trying to roll out a story on why you do what you do or why you believe what you believe or something like that. Okay, now here's where the work begins. In this section, part two of the book, he calls it Taking Words Out. Here, oh my goodness, he really goes through a lot of different things and I'm just going to take you through some of these things. I'm going to go step by step on all 21 steps. I may not address much on some, more on others. But here he uh, paraphrased William Strunk. If, if any of you had Strunk and White when you were in college for your writing, a great book that I you know have had on myself for 100 years, he says, the more words you can eliminate without changing meaning and sacrificing detail, the clearer and more powerful your writing will be. So he's an advocate of removing excess words um, and because he believes they weaken the verbs. And so this chapter, this whole part of this book covers 21 problems that are solved by removing one or more words. Pretty awesome, right? So he advised going through all of them in 
your first chapter of your book so that you can get the hang of it and then do the same thing to the rest of your manuscript. Yikes! A lot of work, but really good tips to keep in mind. All right, step one. Use fewer ing words, I-N-G words, those progressives. So he says it reduces action. And his example, he said, he started running across the lawn can be improved by just saying he ran across the lawn. Instead of the started running, he just did it, right? You don't want to change all your ing words, but because you need some variety in your um, in your story, but be mindful that sometimes you can just shorten it. He ran. He didn't started. He didn't just start running. He ran. Also. Um, to be phrases, um, the is and the was verb. He said, change was walking to walked. Boom, point blank, right? Uh, he says, sentences, starting with the ing word, make sentences more powerful by not trivializing the action. In his example, regretting her nasty tone, Betty said, hey, I'm sorry. And that can change to, Betty regretted her nasty tone. Hey, I'm sorry. Simple, just getting rid of some of that ing. Taking that doing this and then that happened, you can just say that happened. All right, step two. Fewer infinitives. Infinitives are those verbs that are like to followed by a simple verb. Okay, so examples are to run, etc. His example is, she started to run toward the edge versus she ran toward the edge. And a thing to note here is we don't know if she got there. We can't say that she ran to the edge. She ran toward the edge. That's what it's supposed to say. You have to present these the meaning of these infinitives without all the mess. His example shows here, the plants are going to die in the winter. He changes that to, the plants will die in the winter. Shorter, sweeter. Step three, change your passive voice to the active voice. I see this an awful lot, even in my client's own work. So his example was, she was hit by the ball. And he changed that from that passive voice to the ball hitter. Bam! <laughs> you know, it's so much more impactful, isn't it? The action is more real time and it's more now. She was hit by the ball. Oh, wow, poor girl. The ball hit her back right upside the head. I mean, that sounds more meaningful. He suggests that the word by indicates passive voice. So... Is the car owned by you or do you own the car? Makes it more active. Step four, avoid expletive and had blank that constructions. What he's saying here is that had blank that hides the action and should be avoided. And his examples were, she had hair that flowed over her shoulders to make that more um, a stronger phrase, her hair flowed over her shoulders. 
you get rid of that had blank that, had hair that. It just flowed over his shoulders. More concise. Step five, use fewer hads, H-A-D-S, in internal dialogue. Eliminating a lot of hads can make uh, your flashback thoughts closer to the present, he says, and it'll take the reader back to that time. And then you talk, once you take the reader back, then you talk as if you are in the present moment. That's one of the benefits to doing that in internal dialogue. Now, in step six, he suggests that you shorten verbs. He recommended changing would be able to, to could. A shortened sentence and leaves the meaning intact. A rule of thumb, he says, is when a verb phrase consists of two or more words, look for ways to shorten it. You know, you could say she would be able to get her degree in four years. And instead of that, you could say she could get her degree in four years. Step seven, eliminate double verbs. His example, she sat and watched television all day versus she watched television all day. Now, he says that it would be notable if she watched it standing up on one leg, but we, we would have mentioned that, right? So we assume that she sat and watched it, right? I just thought that was so funny. But we often say things that are obvious, right? And she sat and watched it all day. I assume she didn't stand up and watch TV all day. You did too, right? Okay, step eight. Eliminate double nouns, adjectives, and adverbs. So just as with verbs, double of other parts of speech are redundant too, and they're often cliches, and they often dilute meaning. He says some sound good and roll right off the tongue, but they're really unnecessary. His example, um, some really quick, simple examples. Complete and utter utter nonsense. Hard and fast. Bits and pieces. We don't need all those redundancies. You can say parts, bits, pieces, uh, nonsense. We don't have to say all the other stuff. Step nine, watch for foggy phrases. This may be a little bit harder. But basically what you're trying to do is just eliminate all the fog in a sentence. All right, here's an example. He has the ability to add quickly. Reducing the fog in that changes to, he can add quickly. Wow. Much less foggy. He has the ability to add quickly versus he can add quickly. Another good example of his was, they have a difference of opinion. And that changes to, they disagree. Talk about fog reduction, right? In the book, he shares about 250 foggy phrases um, that you can take a look at and eliminate out of your own writing. I recommend that you get the book yourself to see what those 250 foggy phrases are because I'm not going through that. But it's easy to see how we use those in language because we're used to the way they sound and when we say them, oh, it just sounds, it flows better. The 
but the reality is we just don't need all those words. Step 10, he goes back into more of the fiction realm because he's suggesting that we remove character filters and allow the reader to feel what the character feels. Now, when you're telling a story, this can be appropriate. One of his examples was she could see his knuckles turn white. And he suggested changing that to his knuckles turned white. Then the reader can envision that and, and we can see that rather than just she, the character. Allow the reader to feel and see what's going on when you're telling your stories in your book. Step 11, delete L-Y words. Those wonderful little adverbs that qualify our characters' utterances from dialogue tags, he said angrily. <laughs> A funny note um, from the author is that adding these tags says, that he said it angrily because the author just said so. But after the character said his line, the author poked his reader's shoulder and said, that thing the character just said, it was said in an angry manner. I just wanted you to know that. I just thought that was so funny. But I mean, imagine if a movie director said that every time a character spoke in a movie. He's saying that really mad, right? You want to know that. Doing that angrily, he said angrily, is kind of doing the same thing. You're interjecting into the dialogue of a story. And the readers need to be able to feel that themselves. Um... Also, in non-dialogue, he said adverbs can weaken the sentence. And in his example, he said that Amy quickly jumped up versus Amy jumped up. Step 12. Get rid of all the dialogue tags except said. Yeah, except said. So in here, it's not telling, it's showing. I mean, it's telling and not showing, and so it's another author intrusion. So he said, find another way to show what you're trying to tag. And his example was, I did it, John lied. Well, if we were in the other character's point of view, she doesn't know he lied, but the author went and blabbed it. So let her find out some other way and change it to he said. Then his next step, he says, now get rid of said. He said the tags are more to keep track of who is speaking, but by exchanging them for actions or emotions, it takes out the author intrusion of those L-Y words, right, and makes it more exciting. So one of the things that is challenging when some of my authors have added dialogue to their stories, the volleys get so voluminous that you really do need the tags to figure out where who's talking. So be mindful of that. If you go more than a few volleys back and forth in dialogue, you may need to remind the reader who's talking now. So don't get rid of all the sets, but try to get rid of as many sets as you can. And maybe you can change it to an action that they take before they respond. Like Carol shifted in her seat and then said, well, actually, blah, blah, blah. So he uses some of those, he provides some of those examples in the book under step 12. No, I'm sorry, step 13. Now in step 14, he says, cut the dialogue. <laughs> 
He suggests that, you know, we don't want to say everything as people actually say it. So don't include it with all the extraneous stuff. Just include the important stuff. He says sometimes we can reduce our dialogue by about two thirds by only focusing on the important stuff. Less fog, more tightness. Step 15, eliminate redundancies. This is very good for the nonfiction writer. He suggests that offering two meanings for one event or issue adds fog and should be removed. For example, here's a redundant modifier. That was the end result. Instead of that, he suggests that was the result. He shares a couple of different redundancies that you can eliminate in your language. Firm commitment becomes commitment. Past experience becomes experience. So you can eliminate some of those redundancies and lower the fog index on your work and also reduce your word count overall. Step 16, use fewer prepositional phrases. He says it reduces verbiage and increases readability. Some of those phrases that start with by, on, to, in, often followed by the, create more fog than is necessary. So he provides uh, several fast fixes on page 133 in the book, and he says, he took her by the hand becomes he took her hand, and side of the road becomes roadside. Simple, clear, doesn't change the, me change the meaning. Step 17, get rid of throwaway words. <laughs> he said that they really add a lot of fog and chase away readers. So he removed, and in one example, he said he removed 800 that's, T-H-A-T-S's, apostrophe S's from a novel. I think that I'll take it becomes I'll take it. So he's getting rid of the word that. Oftentimes you can just get rid of throwaway words that aren't going to make an impact. One thing to keep in mind, he says, is that then is often assumed if you're recounting a story in chronological order. Just start with the next action. So you don't have to say, well, then he went here and then he went there and then he did this and then he did that. Let's get rid of all those thens. He lists a bunch of extra words on uh, pages 141 and 42 in the book. So you'll be able to see a lot of those redundant words and so forth that he suggests you eliminate those throwaway words. Step 18, edit for conciseness. Here he recommends that you combine and condense phrases to strike the extra verbiage. He calls um, all the fog phrases that we can cut mind garbage. So he suggests you get rid of that mind garbage out of your writing. One example that he gave was on his way home from work could be reworded to be after work. See how many words we reduce right there. So you can clean up your uh, content by just making it more concise. Step 19, avoid cliches like the plague. <laughs> so after we use cliches and we don't even know it, right? 
Um, his One of his examples was, Margaret watched Bill out of the corner of her eye. And instead of saying that, you can just say, Margaret secretly watched Bill. She's looking out of the corner of her eye, right? We are so used to saying that cliche that we think it's better than just being concise. But it's not true. Using cliches, he says, means being lazy and sometimes boring. And he suggests that instead, you should use your own interpretation. He offers 20... 200, I'm sorry, 200 cliches to watch for in your own writing in the book. 200. There are a lot of things that we say that we don't need to be saying. And, you know, some of them, we don't even know what they mean anymore, right? I mean, there's some things we say that, uh, I, I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of something right now. I don't, uh, cute is a button. Why is a button cute? I, I don't even know. You're just cute, right? Can you just be cute? Whatever. So anyway, watch your, watch your cliches, and he can help you to do that by some of the cliches he has listed in the book. Step 20, he says, are to get rid of the superficials. Like cliches, he says, without conveying information, these superficials are. Remove them, and they won't be missed. They add nothing but fog, he says. So his example is, it goes without saying that the sky is a deep blue. Duh, the sky is a deep blue. We don't need to say it goes without saying, right? And it didn't change any of the meaning by getting rid of that part. Those are just fillers. They don't belong in writing. Don't even bother putting them in there. Go ahead and cut them out. It's okay. Step 21. This is the last step in um, taking out and getting rid of our words here. Don't... Oh, step 21 is stop those wandering eyes. That's what he calls the chapter. It says, don't ruin a reader's concentration and focus with inappropriate use of gaze or stare. And I just thought this was funny. His examples... She let her eyes wander up the street. And he says, who would let their eyes leave their heads like that? Versus she gazed up the street. It's so funny. Her eyes went across the road. Ew. Versus she stared across the road. I just thought that was so funny. But we let things do things that don't actually do things. You know, um, I just think that is so funny. Uh, you often, you know, see those, her eyes followed him. She couldn't keep her eyes off his body. Her eyes traveled around the room and out the window. Her eyes were glued to the TV set. Her eyes took the both. It's like, ew, who wants their eyes to be doing all those things? Anyway, uh, <laughs> so I just thought that was a funny step uh, in your writing to uh, clear up. Oh, boy. All right. I'm going to quickly cover just a few quick points in part three because it's focusing on sharing your words, but his focus is on those who have just finished a novel and they're trying to get it perfected and and get it sent to editors and publishers and agents and so forth. So I'm just going to mention a few things he mentions in these next five uh, chapters or so. So first he says, you know, consider having critique partners who are not your mate, 
who will give you some honest feedback about your manuscript. And then he recommends having your work professionally edited before sending to agents or publishers. Uh, Your critique partner, he said, is not sufficient and your manuscript will likely need a lot more work to make it publishable. I would agree with that. He warns, uh, as you're looking for editors, you get what you pay for. So be mindful of that. If it only costs you a penny, it's probably worth less than that. He says in regards to publishers and agents, he suggests finding uh, your agent, one, by doing first-hand research. Obviously, you can ask those who um, have published before you who their agents are and so forth and whether or not you can get any recommendations. But look in those books also that are similar to yours and genre and so forth and see who uh, agented or published those books so that you can see if you can look to them. And make sure that when you're sending a query to an agent or a publisher that you don't send anything more than what they ask for. And they are very specific, each of them, in their own way. So don't assume that just because this agent or publisher over here asks for that for the first 10 pages that the next one is. The next one may want the first three chapters. So you, you really need to be specific and pay attention. He also mentioned in writing a query letter to them, he said that your query is defined as your pitch to the publisher or agent. And the cardinal rule is every query for fiction should be single spaced on a single page. When you are writing a nonfiction book and you intend to pitch it to an agent and a publisher, you're going to be writing a book proposal. And that's something that you might look to, you know, someone like me as a ghostwriter who can write the proposal uh, with you or for you and then help to pitch you to your agencies. But you can also certainly do that on your own. There are resources out there to help you to do that. Just make sure that you pay attention to whomever you are pitching that to and providing what they ask you to provide. Because there are some agencies, quite frankly, who will tell you exactly what they want to see in your book proposal. And some of them go as far as giving you kind of like an outline of what your proposal should have. So if you don't have those elements when you're sending it to them, Forget about it. You're not even following directions. So don't expect to get any feedback. Anyway, be uh, specific and be clear when you're writing your proposal to each agent and agency that you're going for. And in chapter 15 of his book, he talked about writing the synopsis. And he suggests you do that before you query for your book. He said it's an outline and a narrative summary of your book. And think of it as a way to tell your friends about your your book's plot or content. And maybe it's not going to be so scary if you're just sitting there talking to your friend about what is, what's your story about, what's your book about. Tell them and then write that up. All right. I have to tell you that I found the book very interesting, Editor-Proof Your Writing by Don um, McNair. I found it to be interesting and helpful to a, a certain degree for nonfiction authors. Obviously, there's more of interest to fiction authors as well. But, you know, there are going to be times when nonfiction books will use some of the features of a fiction book, like memoirs or books where you share illustrative stories and things of that nature. 
And even though uh, this particular book was published in 2013, I still find it very relevant, and especially the advice about getting a professional editor. As an editor myself, I recognize that that advice is priceless. Um, I'll put a link to the book, uh, Editor Proof Your Writing. I'll put a link to it in the show notes so that you can access it and grab a copy of for yourself and for your next writing project. Look through some of those 21 steps in particular and see if it helps you to clean up some of your writing. All right, thank you for putting up with me today, running through all these wonderful tips for writing that is like, oh my gosh, how can I get all that down? If you have any questions, please know that you can always, always, always email us at podcast at writesomethingworthy.com. Podcast at writesomethingworthy.com. We're here to answer your questions if you have them. We're happy to help you to work through it. And now it's time again for our abundant author affirmation. Write it down if it resonates with you. Post it wherever you'll see it and say it throughout the day to keep your heart happy and your subconscious mind aware of it. I care enough to improve my manuscript before my editor ever sees it. I care enough to improve my manuscript before my editor ever sees it. And with that, we are complete. I look forward to being of assistance to you as you think about working through your next manuscript. And if you have any questions, again, please reach out to podcast at writesomethingworthy.com. Let me know whether or not any of those steps that Don McNair outlined in his book resonate with you, if there's some things that you find that you do often that you hadn't even realized, I would love to hear your feedback about that. Send your comments and let us know. So thanks for listening today. And remember, download, subscribe, and join our worthy tribe. You've been listening to the Write Something Worthy podcast with Tonya Brockett. If you would like to know more about today's topic, find show notes, relevant links, and more at writesomethingworthy.com. Have a question or something to add to the conversation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at podcast at writesomethingworthy.com. Please take a moment to leave an honest review on your favorite podcast platform. These reviews help us to improve our show and help us to spread the word. If you know anyone who would enjoy these episodes, please share it with them. Have a wonderful week and we hope you join us next Wednesday for another fabulous episode.